in his book, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility, Ray Ortland reminds us of who we are. And it is a much-needed reminder today. Here's what he says. This world has no idea what you're really worth. Around here, you are at best useful. You fit into a market niche or a voting block or some other impersonal category to be manipulated for someone's selfish agenda. But that is not who you are. The truth is, you are royalty. Britain has its royal family with the pomp and ceremony. I respect that. But you belong to a royal family from beyond all this world. So how crazy is it that you might feel like God is up there rolling his eyes at you, thinking what an idiot you are? The God who is actually out there respects you. To him, you're not a pawn, not a loser. In God's eyes, you have royal dignity. What a great reminder that every single human being, every single person in this world, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, they have value and they have dignity and they are not to be discarded. We want to be a church full of disciples who know what we're worth, who know our actual grandeur and royalty. We want to be a church who stands up for people. We want to be disciples who wake up every morning mentally prepared to bring God's kingdom royalty into whatever the day might reveal. So let me remind you this morning that regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you feel about your life right now, regardless of how you feel about yourself and your body and your looks, Regardless of how old or young you are, regardless of how you may have been treated by someone, you are royalty. And so is every other human being created in God's image. And so is every baby in every womb, which is why we are against abortion and why we call it what it is, evil. Abortion is evil. Abortion is murder, the murder of royalty. So today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we pause to be reminded that every human being conceived in the womb and born into this world is royalty and is worthy of being stood up for. And so because we are made in God's image, created by God himself, then of course we have dignity, we have value, we are royalty, made by the King of Kings himself, fashioned in our mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. That's why you are royalty. Because the Holy Spirit got needle and thread, so to speak, and knit you together in all of your royalty inside your mother's womb. I don't know what voices you hear often. Voices that might say things like, you're not good enough. You're not beautiful, you're too fat, you're ugly, nobody likes you, 
Nobody loves you. You're pointless. Those are lies. And if you entertain those lies, then you need to listen to what the Holy Spirit says to you today. He says, you are precious. I made you. Look at my handiwork. I love you. You're perfect. You are royalty. I have a feeling that somebody here today needs to hear that. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, you royal sons and daughters of the king. In order to understand, what it be made, to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, to understand that we are royalty, we need to start at the very beginning. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, this is important, right at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God puts his own dignity on every single person. Every single person that is conceived in the womb and born into this world has value because God is their creator. If God makes it, then it's good. That's how it works. He makes the rules, and rule number one is, if God makes it, then it's good. It's very good. And that's why racism is evil. Because God loves and created all peoples, all nations, all races, all people groups of the world. God loves all races. They were his idea. People groups are God's idea. Multiple skin colors. That was God's idea. He came up with that. And it's good. Very good. And that's why we are against racism. It's why we are against any person being judged or treated differently or treated horribly because of the color of their skin. Racism says that only certain groups are royalty. Racism assigns value and worth to certain groups based on skin color. Racism denies that all human beings are royalty. Racism is a sin that is handcrafted and forged in the fires of hell by the devil himself. It's anti-gospel. It's anti-Genesis 1. And so God rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty in the Garden of Eden and making mankind shows us that we are to value human life, the sanctity of life. And that's why we're opposed to racism it's why we are opposed to abortion. It's why we are opposed to killing innocent babies. It's why we are opposed to human trafficking. It's why we're opposed to slavery. Why we are opposed to pedophiles who prey on children. It's why we're opposed to child abuse. It's why we are opposed to rape. It's why we are opposed to terrorists 
who blow people up and chop off their heads. Because human beings were not made to be tossed out in garbage bags at abortion clinics. Human beings were not made to be beat up or shot and killed because of the color of their skin. Human beings were not made to be blown up by a bomb strapped to someone's chest. Human beings were not made to be physically abused by family members. Human beings were not made to be sold into the various slave markets that are out there today. Human beings have value and worth and dignity because they are images of God himself. And that's why what happened on the sixth and final day of creation is one of the most important things in the Bible. It's what our world needs to understand today. We need day six of creation. If people could come to grips and understand what day six of creation means, it would cure a lot of our ills in our society today. The sixth and final day of creation is one of the most important things in the Bible because Genesis 1 gives us new eyes, gospel-centered eyes to see people correctly. Think about that. God is teaching us how to view one another in Genesis 1, how to think about one another, how to treat one another, including and starting with people we dislike and disagree with. I mean, how about that? Listen, if you struggle, if you dislike someone, when you think of them, you should read Genesis 1 to get recalibrated on who they are. Now, of course, we all have our own ideas about people that we dislike and disagree with, and they're usually not good ideas, are they? Or at least to us, they are. We, of all people, feel justified in how we see others, especially those we dislike. But can we really trust our hearts? Can we trust our own sinful hearts to make judgment calls about people? The answer is no, and that's why God gave us a record of what happened on day six in order to be a voice, to be the authoritative voice outside of us to give us eyes to be able to see each other correctly. So Genesis 1 kicks down our doors and confronts us in our sin. It says, stop seeing people as discardable objects and instead see them as divine royalty. The gospel of Jesus positions us then to treat one another like royalty, like the handmade images of God that we are. And every other non-gospel voice, whether in our head, in our hearts, on social media, every other voice beckons us to what? Treat one another like dirt. So the question before us every single day is, are we going to bring God's kingdom royalty into whatever the day might reveal? Are we going to treat people like the royalty that they are or the dirt that we imagine them to be? Are we going to treat others as if they are made in the image and likeness of God? But what does it actually mean that we are made in the image and likeness of God? Here are a few very helpful explanations. Paul Tripp says, look into the face of any person, anywhere at any time, And remember that the one thing you know for sure is that he or she bears the stamp of God's image. Everything you think about people and all the ways that you relate to them should be shaped by God's declaration made in my image. All other identity markers are subservient to this one, like God. There is no more basic thing that you could say about every human being that has ever 
lived. So to be made in the image of God means that we are like God. Now, we are not God. We will discover that in a couple of weeks when we start a new preaching series on the attributes of God. We are not God, but we are like Him. We are built for community and relationships. We are moral beings. We have spiritual capacities. We can create. We have been given dominion to rule over creation. In those ways, we are like God. Richard Pratt says, I think the most comprehensive definition of image of God is everything you are minus sin. Everything you are is the image of God, excluding sin. That means your eyeballs matter and your curly hair matters and it drives you crazy because you want straight hair, right? And your elbows matter and your kneecaps matter and your spleen matters. All of you minus sin is royalty. All of you is royalty. So remember that when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. Remember, you're royalty. And when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what do you typically think? You think to yourself, wow, I look good. We don't do that, do we? We think, wow, I look terrible. I look rough. But then we take a shower and then we fix ourselves up and then we look in the mirror and we usually like the way we look or at least there are a few days where we stare at our reflection a little longer and we like it and our hair is just right and our outfit is good. I hope you have at least a few of those days every once in a while. But the reflection that we see in the mirror is not really us. It's just a reflection of us. The real us is standing in front of the mirror. The real us gets in the car. The real us drives to work. Our reflection does not do those things. That's what it means to be the image of God. We are just a reflection of him. But we are not him. The Hebrew phrases, in our image, in his own image, in the image of God that Moses uses in Genesis 1 here, uh, could be rendered, let us make man as our image. And I think that's the idea. To be the image of God means that we are God's representatives in this world. We live as human beings who are his representatives. And that's precisely the idea behind the Hebrew word for image. The Hebrew word is is selim. Selim was used throughout the ancient Near East, not just in Israelite culture, but, but all over. It was used for these little statues or these little images or little replicas. So as kings conquered lands, they would set up these little statues of themselves all over the lands that they conquered and that they brought under their control. They obviously were not identical to the king, obviously, right? They're not the king, but they represented the king. Therefore, you would not dare vandalize one of these images because that was paramount to desecrating or damaging the king himself. Here's a statue of the Assyrian king, Asher Nasserpal II, okay? Little images of like him could be found in the ancient Near East as he conquered, okay? He lived in 883 to 859 B.C. In this 
statue here, Asher Nasserpal is holding a sickle in his right hand. In the ancient Near East, they believe that kings would use these sickles to fight off monsters. The mace in his left hand shows his authority as the vice regent of the supreme god Asher. The carved cuneiform inscription across his chest proclaims his titles and his genealogy and mentions his military expeditions as he marched westward to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, King Asher Nasserpal, like many kings in the ancient Near East, loved to brag about his war tactics. Listen to how he described his typical war technique. Listen to how he treated human beings made in the image of God. He said this, it's what we do. We burn the city, we mutilate all grown men who are prisoners by cutting off their hands and ears, gouging out their eyes and piling their bodies in a great heap and we leave them to die from sunflies, heat and suffocation. We take all the children and burn them at the stake. Then we take the chief of the city, cart him off home to the home city where he would be flayed alive. So you can see that the Assyrians were a grisly, gruesome people. And this explains why Jonah was hesitant to go to Nineveh because the city of Nineveh was in Assyria. So no wonder Jonah didn't want to go preach the gospel to these people. He couldn't stand these people. It's hard to imagine any Israelite would have a a neutral emotional response to, uh, I mean, any Israelite, any uh, neutral emotional response when they heard about the Assyrians because these people were wicked. This is why Genesis chapter 1, when Moses writes it, is so countercultural because in Asher Nasserpal's day, and even in ours, we mistreat one another. The world, inspired by the devil himself, says, treat people how you want. Slaughter innocent unborn babies. Bully people. Hate someone because of the color of their skin. Sell little boys and girls into all kinds of slavery. Use women and their images in ways that bring you pleasure. And so really, the abortion industry and the porn industry are just modern-day King Asher Nasserpal kingdoms flexing as they abuse women and babies. It's demonic. Let me quote from Ray Ortland's book, The Death of Porn. Men, you need to get this book. Women, get this book so you can find out that you're royalty. Here's what Ray Ortland says. The king of the universe created you, he's speaking to the men, to stand as royalty advancing his kingdom. Let that awareness settle on you. Here's your next step. She is royalty too. God created every woman with high dignity and immeasurable worth. Whether or not any woman herself believes it, this is still true. God created her for majesty. God is why she matters. And no one has the right to degrade her since God has dignified her. Whoever a woman is in his sight, that's what she's really worth. Since to God above, every woman is regal, cherished, worthy, it's about time we men demand of ourselves and of all this world that she be treated right. Genesis 127 surprised everyone. 
It was God speaking into our abusive world with a bold claim. A woman deserves all the respect any man deserves because she is created in God's image as much as any man. Okay, now we're ready to understand what porn really is. Porn is Satan recruiting us to degrade a woman into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery. Satan hates women. Okay, now we're ready to understand what porn really is. Porn is Satan recruiting us men to degrade a woman into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery. Satan hates women. Wow. You ever think about that? Satan hates women? That's why there's a porn industry? Because Satan hates women. And so as the world tries to degrade women, along comes the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, and he says to women, you are royalty. Okay, back to the image of kings in the ancient Near East. Kings would make all kinds of shapes of these images of their likeness to be displayed all over the land. So there were big statues and little statues, and you could put them on your mantle, and they would be on corn, uh, corns, coins, and you get little ones to hang from your car mirror if you wanted to. They were made of silver, gold, clay was pretty common. Uh, they were everywhere. They were really the modern-day equivalent of billboards and ads. The king wanted everyone in his kingdom to be reminded of who was in charge. And so how does the triune God make his presence known in this world? He makes images, the Hebrew word selim, representatives called human beings. That's you and me. And we have been placed here all over the earth to represent the triune God, to represent our creator, to represent the sovereign Lord and the king of kings. And so... Contrary to King Asher Nasser Paul II, and even contrary to Jonah, every human being conceived in this world has value and is a representative of God, whether they believe in Jesus or not. The glory of the divine image extends to every single human being. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says, in the ancient Near Eastern text, only the king is in the image of God. But in the Hebrew perspective, this is democratized to all humanity. That's what it means to be made as the image of God, is that we represent or we image forth God in this world. So every single human being is made in the image of God. Not just God's children who are united to Christ by faith, but all human beings, even the ones that really bother you and the ones that you wish you could do something to them, they're made in the image of God too. Now notice we aren't made in the image of a chimpanzee or a bird or a little beetle. We did not evolve. Why? Because those things are too small. They're too insignificant. We're not even made in the likeness of Saturn Jupiter, or the entire universe, because all those things are too small to describe who you are. You are the image of God. You are royalty, and that should floor you. You are not God, but you are the image of God. 
And when you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, what you see is the image of God, a created being who is made to be a representative of the living God in this world. And that kind of changes how you feel about those wrinkles and love handles, isn't it? You have value, you have splendor, you have worth because the triune God made you. Not because of what somebody else says about your body, not because of what you feel about your body, but you have splendor and value and worth because of what he says, because he's the one who made you. Every human being has value and worth of a king, the king of kings. Not just any emperor or king or queen, but the king of kings, Jesus himself. And that ought to change the way we treat one another and change the way we talk to each other. I was convicted as I was preparing this sermon this week because I've been sick this week and I was a bit crabby with my family. I want to be honest with you. And the Holy Spirit was reminding me, I was like, do I have to preach this passage? (laughs) I haven't treated my family well. The Holy Spirit was reminding me that I need some heart surgery done in this area. Every human being is the image of God. But think about how we treat one another. Think about how we treat our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our coworkers, people in our family. Think about driving through that roundabout and think about when that representative of God doesn't drive through the roundabout the correct way. Think about being in the 20 items or less line at the grocery store and here comes a representative of God who shows up with 30 grocery items. What do we do? Do we think to ourselves, well, looky there. There's a representative of the triune God. There's a glorious image of God, and they just cut me off in the roundabout. They have such value. There's a glorious representative of the triune God, and they are breaking grocery store etiquette. But they are royalty because they are made in God's image. Praise the Lord. We don't do that, do we? What do we usually say? Well, we can't say it in here, can we? We usually, we probably mumble something on our breath like the dad on a Christmas story. Right? Going through the roundabout. and What does James, the brother of Jesus, say in chapter 3? For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You should come away from James chapter 3 from reading this passage and say two things. Number one, these things ought not to be so in my life. And number two, I desperately need the Holy Spirit. And he is willing to help you treat others like royalty. Just ask him. So what does it look like? How do we treat one another like royalty? I think one of the easiest ways to go about it looks like this. It's all the one another passages that we read about in the New Testament. I'll read a few. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God, serve one another in love, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Brothers, do not slander one another. What if we did these? What if we one anothered our way to revival here at Grace? Think about that. What if we one anothered our way to revival and refreshment here at Grace? And then people might come up and ask us, tell us, how did revival come to Grace? And we would say, we just loved one another and forgave one another and honored one another. That's it. All the one another's in the New Testament are one way that we can treat one another as royalty. Now, instead, we tend to do the opposite, don't we? We scrutinize one another, pressure one another, embarrass one another, corner one another, interrupt one another, defeat one another, sacrifice one another, shame one another, marginalize one another, exclude one another, judge one another, run one another's lives, and confess one another's sins. So it's true. None of us have treated people perfectly. None of us have treated people like the royalty that God says they are. We've all sinned in many ways. Hurtful words, actions. Only Jesus lived perfectly. So we have to let the law expose us and then we have to run to Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he treated everyone as royalty. And when we look to him by faith, he credits us with his, I never sinned and I always treated everyone as royalty. He gives that to us. He went to the cross joyfully because we aren't perfect. As Preston Sprinkle says, the joy of being reconciled and reunited with his image-bearing masterpieces turned enemies who deserve wrath, not forgiveness, justice, not grace. Joy for you is what kept Jesus going. Through every slash of the whip, every pound of the nail, every agonizing breath, every shameful insult hurled from the mouths of his beloved enemies, it was for Jesus' stubborn delight set before him that he endured the cross. The ingenuity of the Persians, the barbaric fine-tuning of the Romans, the wood, spikes, hammers, splinters, and crown of thorns picked from a garden are all woven into the tapestry of grace as the only fitting way to capture God's love for his image bearers. This is why you can't make God love you. God loves you because of God. God acted in Jesus out of his own freedom to descend into a feeding trough and spread his arms across the splintery beam of wood. It was Jesus' declaration, it is finished, that made God love you. And when Jesus declared, it is finished, he meant it. God's punishment for our sin was paid for, permanently settled, finished, 100%. 
If you have responded in faith to God's free pardon through Jesus, then God will never punish you for your sin. It's finished. No more. If you screw up today or tomorrow, which you will, it's already been paid for through Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul said. None. God will not and cannot condemn you after he has already condemned Jesus for you. It's impossible. God will never be angry with you since his anger was poured out on Jesus. All of it, 100%. This point needs to soak into your bones because we have a natural desire to cover our shame with guilt instead of grace. Guilt drags along behind us like a ball and chain even though God has shattered the chain with a cross. So you can rest today because every one of your failures to treat others as royalty has been laid on Jesus' back. And every one of your failures has died with Jesus in his death when he tasted death for you to be remembered no more. Rest because Jesus can remember your sins no more. Rest because all your yesterdays are nailed to the cross and are to be remembered no more. Rest and remember no more. Rest because the gospel is true. You know, maybe, maybe you even had an abortion. Or maybe your girlfriend or wife did and you struggle to believe that you are forgiven. If you are trusting in Christ, Jesus does not condemn you for that. He will never condemn you. God is not angry with you. He poured his anger out upon his son. You are welcome in his arms. And you are welcome here in this fellowship. That is not your identity. Your identity is that you are in Christ. If you're dragging chains of condemnation and guilt because of something that you've done like that, you need to know that you are free and you are forgiven if you're trusting in Christ. So let's repent today of the ways that we have treated one another. I want that to be kind of our, our takeaway today, so we're, that we are forgiven, but to repent of the ways that we have treated one another in our family, church, workplaces, neighborhoods, and then let's begin to treat one another like the royalty that we truly are. Let's watch how we treat one another. Let's be kind. Let's be kind to one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's extend mercy to one another. Let's be vigilant to watch how we speak to one another and the words that we say to other people. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to set a guard over our mouths so that no unclean thing would come out. And because it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, let's stand up for the unborn. Grab a baby bottle on the way out and fill it up with some change or get involved at CareNet Call them up and say, how can I serve? And then let's repent for all the ways that we have mistreated others. Let's repent for how we've treated our brother or sister, our spouse, our neighbors, our coworkers. What might happen if we began to treat one another as royalty? Maybe revival would come. What if we one anothered our way to revival? What if our kindness to one another led all of us to repentance. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment and pray before we sing. So the band's going to come up. There'll be a minute or two of silence, and they can start in on the last song whenever they want to. 
I know we probably all could do some repenting and confession of sin this morning. Because who hasn't lived a life of self, curved in on oneself, where treating other people harshly just comes easy? Who hasn't lived like that? I'm sure we all have some confessing to do. So let's repent. We'll take a moment or two in silence before we sing. Let's turn to Jesus. Let's ask him to forgive us and to heal us. And then after a few minutes, we're going to stand fully forgiven, knowing that there is no condemnation, And we are going to sing to our Savior who loves us. And then as you sing, God will be singing these words over you. You are royalty. So let's take a couple minutes wherever you're at and just pray. And then the band can start uh, whenever they're ready.